Take your seat, movie fans. The film's about to start. Welcome back to Craft of Services, the show where we look back at the bad films of cinematic history, the movies that critics rejected but audiences embraced. I'm your host, Aaron Coker. I'm also the host of the Just Enough Trope podcast and the Enterprising Individuals podcast on this, the Just Enough Trope Network. Find out more at justenoughtrope.com. Joining me on the show today is a returning guest, Melissa F. Olson, author of Dead Spots and the Scarlet Bernard series, the Boundary Magic series, as well as Nightshades with Tor Publishing, and her new novel, Switchback, which is available for pre-order and will be out on October 24th. Melissa, welcome back to the show. Thank you. And thank you for mentioning my books, because I get so excited, like I kind of forget about that. Yes. Yes, you know? that's, that's my job. But I totally understand why today's movie, Last Action Hero, can't really be discussed on just enough trope. Because it's got about 400% trope. It's, it's max trope. It is. It is peak trope. Yes. Yeah, it's over the top. Uh, although over the top, that'd be another movie we could do on the show. You totally um, could. Before we get started, I had some more questions about your time at film school. Okay. I know that film sure. school, uh, from what I've heard, is just all engrossing. You can't do anything else when you're in film school. You're extremely busy. Is that true? Mm, I mean, it's college, man. It's it's <laughs> like it's like college. They do discourage you from like getting a part time job or something like that. Yeah. But um, I had a part time job. <laughs> like, oh, sure. It it then again, on the other hand, I was not a huge socializer in college. Uh. USC is a pretty big school, and L.A. was quite a culture shock for me coming from um, Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin, population 13,000, go Cardinals. <laughs> so um, I, you know, I stayed home a lot, and I would study. Um, I got to my, what, junior year and realized that I had accidentally taken enough courses to double major, and so I was just like, Hey, let's double major. That sounds like a great idea. Sure. So I'm not a great person to ask about this. I would not say it was all consuming, no. Sure. But then again, I had no social life until like junior year. So, okay. You know. Well, that must have helped. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. And also, like when you go to film school, and I'm just guessing about this, you can maybe disabuse me of this notion, but like. Mm -hmm. Film fans um, who listen to this show, so I have to be careful, um, can be really particular about stuff. And I'd have to imagine that people who are um, big enough fans that they want to make films are even worse. Just among like my circle of friends, you can be like, well, I haven't seen such and such. Oh, my God. You haven't seen such and such. Oh, yeah. There's How could that. you? Yeah, that has to. Is it really? It's like that at, at uh, film school? View shaming people. Yes. <laughs> um, but. Like in so many ways, there is a divide in film school between the people who want to make, like, money and the people who want to make arty, thought-provoking, think-piece films. Okay, okay. Um, I, had, I had sort of known about this beforehand because I applied to two different film schools. I applied to the Tisch School of the Arts, which is at NYU, right. and I applied to USC. And I got into both and I kind of had my, you know, got to pick. And I went with USC because I was told that Tish was the place you went for art films and okay. indie films. Okay. Um, this was in the early 2000s. So we weren't that far out of the 90s and the big indie film movement. Um, so I, I actually like giant blockbuster films. I prefer them. I think they're I, – I prefer them good – uh, I and I think there is such a thing. I like 
escapism and entertainment in film. So I chose USC specifically for that reason. And I, when I got there, I found that there was still a very healthy contingent of students who were like, just, I mean, picture the most douchebaggiest <laughs> artists. Like, I think they stopped. This was like pre-hipsters. There weren't hips. Hipsters weren't a thing yet. But, you know, just everything short of the actual Black Beret was <laughs> was these these people's kind of MO. Sure. So they would get really excited for like, we had to do history of the international film one and history of the international film two. Okay. So those are two separate semesters. And it didn't actually matter what order you took them in because, you know, two was just like 1960 and on and one was pre-1960. So it worked in, in either direction. Mm. And I remember I had... I think it was History of the International Cinema 2. And in the spirit of international-ism, uh, I guess, the school had hired a South American director who did not speak English very well. Okay. And so I remember sitting in that class and having these students get really excited because we were going to watch something like Celine and Julie go boating uh, or, or whatever. And the, the teacher would lecture on it for like an hour and a half. And I always felt like, I was just like in an alternate dimension because I had no idea what he was talking about and I thought the movies were terrible. The only time in my entire life I have ever fallen asleep during a film in a theater was in the international cinema classes. So <laughs> okay. I was not a very good, like, arty film student. That's just not my my bag. Sure. Well, you've got so you've got people who are on the um, the Jean Luc Godard track, and then you've yeah, got yeah. people who are on like the John McTiernan track or the Spielberg, Spielberg track. Sure. So, do they mingle at all? Um, they do. So, like, it's really funny because I took a class called Spielberg, and <laughs> okay. we watch. So, so all the film classes at USC are set in are are they actually take place in a movie theater? Uh-huh. It's a four hundred seat. Norris Cinema, they have what it's one of the best theaters in LA, which is, you know, not a bad place for movie theaters. Right. And so the class took place in the theater and we would have like an hour or two hours of lecture and then we would screen a film that, you know, had to do with that lecture. So in the Spielberg class, it was just like heaven for me because we would let the professor would lecture on a Spielberg movie and then we would watch it. And so then you have all these arty uh, Godard students kind of sneaking in, like sort of ashamedly because they are also so excited. Like, <laughs> but they're too cool for it. But also, you know, they're there like ironically. Yeah, right, you know? right. But the night that we watched Jaws, Spielberg came in for a Q and A. Oh, awesome! Because this is USC, and you can do that there. Right. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it was a great experience. Well, that's cool that the two sides could uh, meet up in that way. Sometimes in certain ways, yes. But the important thing was just to remember that the art side was superior. Um, I the believe that. the side was going to make money. Sure. Right, right. And I feel so, like yeah. uh, the film we're going to talk about um, tries to play with those um, ideas a little bit. And it does. I'm not sure it succeeds, but we'll get into it. Um, look... Um, last time around, we talked about the joy of the bad film. Yep. And I think we're pushing it to the breaking point this time around. And just, per- you, you've told your story, I'm going to tell mine now. Let me set tell, the scene. Tell your story. It's 1993, 
My okay. burgeoning action movie fandom is, well, burgeoning. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm clutching my blockbuster card. Well, my more worldly mm-hmm. friends blockbuster card. Uh, T2 has blown everybody away. Um, mm-hmm. I, I managed to sneak into my first R-rated movie, Universal Soldier, which is uh, 22% of Rotten Tomatoes and might appear on the show in the future. Um, Jurassic Park has just come out. I mean, it's 1990-freaking-three. Yep. Who's ready for the biggest Arnold Schwarzenegger action blockbuster of all time? Wet fart sound. Uh, Last action hero. Yeah, it was totally advertised poorly. Absolutely. I bought in completely because I remember and this is one of those. I feel like every time I stick my neck out, like with my friends, as far as like, let's go check this out. I'm always wrong. Like I dragged oh, yeah. everybody to this. Because and then I, it's your fault. You absolutely. You their day. Yeah, because I saw the trailer and they show the, you know, he throws the axe and Schwarzenegger oh, yeah. ducks under it. And I'm like, this yep. is going to blow your balls off. Uh, no good. Um, they they marketed um, Fifth Element as like Star Wars for the 90s. I dragged everybody to that. And although it's, you know, it's got a cult following It's good these in its days, own way, yeah, but it's not Star it's Wars. It's not Star Wars, no. And I dragged everybody to the Ang Lee Hulk movie. <laughs> so, you know. Okay, well, that one's just on you. Big mistakes all around. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I totally bought into it. And yeah, they totally sold it as, like, this is the next big action movie from Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. And here's, it's not. Here's the, the problem with, with the biggest problem with Last Action Hero is that it came out about 15 years too early. Interesting. Because, so, this movie is a satire and a parody and an example of it, the genre that it's satirizing and parodying, right. which is, P.S., not that easy of a thing to do. No. And the movie has its flaws. It's about 20 minutes too long for oh, one Oh, definitely, thing. yeah. But at the same time, the the satire, when you're looking back at the 90s, is brilliant, I mean, some of the stuff they do with, like, the guy in the closet, and he, like, <laughs> walks into his apartment and shoots the closet door. Yeah. How'd you know he was in there? There's always There's a guy, always a guy in, there. in there. Yeah, right, right. It cost me a fortune in closet doors. Like, <laughs> just stuff like that. I mean, it's genius satire yes but, but um, at there's... the time those movies were still coming out yes you're yes. not supposed to point out flaws in things that people are still currently enjoying especially if you are the person making those movies exactly. in the way of mctiernan and shane black which we'll get into um another movie from 1993 that also could feature for instance a guy behind a door that you just shoot without thinking would be national lampoon's loaded weapon number one which has uh, Tim Curry, who we yes. talked about for Congo, yes. in one of my favorite, probably my favorite Tim Curry cameo appearance ever, where <laughs> okay. he plays the wilderness with yeah. wilderness girl. Yeah. Isn't it a little late for selling cookies? The troop leader says we are not meeting our quota. <laughs> I was like, thinking we could do a whole series with you about films that are living in Jurassic Park's shadow. We could, because... So the thing, so I was reading about the sort of backstory of Last Action Hero, and honestly, it's a miracle that this movie is as good as it is. Whatever level of good you think it is, even if you think it's like 1% good, like it's amazing that it managed to do that. Sure, okay. Because it started out with an actually very dark screenplay, Yes. uh, which is online, and you can read it, and I read some of it last night. I'm not a fan. It's very kind of dark and cruel, and like... The theater owner is the devil, and it's right. like all about temptation of this young boy. It's really weird. And this is by um, Zach Penn and Adam Leff. 
Which, you know, it's the the point is not that it's good or bad, but that it's different. Like it's You're its right. own thing. So right. they started with that. They had Shane Black do a rewrite. They had mm-hmm. uh William Goldman, author of the Princess Bride book, right. do do a rewrite and then they let Arnold be a producer for the first time. Mm-hmm. So not only do you have this director John McTiernan, but you have Arnold Schwarzenegger suddenly for the first time in his career having the ability to like say yes and no. Right. Things. Yeah. And so kind of taking control over and and you know the guy guards his image and it's an image that is lampooned uh, in this movie, which honestly, I'm a little bit impressed with how much they kind of make fun of Arnold. Like the way that he can't, he like Jack Slater can't pronounce Arnold's last name just kills me. Never gets old. Um, so you have all way too many cooks in this kitchen already. Yeah. And then the studio does this advanced screen like they rush everybody. They have everybody just churning out this movie. Right. Way too fast. And yeah. then they rush them into an advanced, like a preview screening, which right. preview screenings are a very typical part of the process. Most movies go through it. Most big movies go through it, I should say. And uh, the it's a disaster. And instead of saying, huh, we've got lots of footage. Maybe we should like take a beat, re-edit this thing and just, you know, try and regroup. The studio says, well, we've got this big summer release date. And if we yeah. move it, we're going we to lose weak. out on the summer revenue. Well, yeah, we lose money. Right, right. So they pushed the film out into the theaters. And if it had been a November movie, it would have been one thing. Or even like, man, this movie could have ruled in February or something. But <laughs> instead, it comes out one week after Jurassic Park. Right. Which is disastrous. Yeah. But one of the reasons they didn't move it is because so uh, last action hero, they picked their date first and then in like, you know, to kind of mess with them, uh, Universal put Jurassic Park one week earlier. So right. the studio execs that is it Warner Brothers, they weren't going to back down from their date after, you know, Universal had slapped them with uh, releasing Jurassic Park. So, right. like you know, I think last did we talk last time about like that really slow moving car accident that everybody should see coming? Yes, we did. Like it, it, it's kind of similar, but at the same time, if you are like 15 and you rent this movie with your 10 year old sister and neither of you have seen many of the R rated, uh, versions of these big action films, it is kind of miraculous. I, could see that in my mind i wish that i felt that though um and you were mentioning before you're mentioning before how uh fast they had to bring it to to screen um i read in an interview with mctiernan that they had like maybe three and a half weeks to edit it um before it had to be um released or at least for the screening insane for a for a blockbuster film like that yeah and i also read it i'm not sure if this is true or not but yeah the, the screening went poorly they only had one and they threw all the comment cards away. They, they in just, fact, they burned them. Yes, because, because this they didn't want anybody to get them. Juggernaut had to just make it to the theater. Yeah, on time. Well, I let's well let's talk about business because you were mentioning money before. Um, so, like we said, it uh, came out on June thirteenth, uh, nineteen ninety three, a week after uh, Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, the budget on the film was $85 million, and it ended up making about $137 million, although I think Sony Columbia claimed a $25 million loss um, with um, a promotion. Uh, because added of in. advertising. I yeah, mean, they right. literally put an ad on the moon. Like oh, yeah. They, they put it on a rocket or something. They, yeah. Space. Like, I'm not sure who you're advertising to in space. That um, might have been a little over the top, guys. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I'm surprised aliens weren't in this film. Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's 37% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, 44 on Metacritic, and a 6.3 on IMDb. So, again, it's not, uh, you know, we're not uh, scraping the bottom of the barrel here, but it's definitely on the low end. Um I also wanted to say, like I say at the beginning of every show, uh, that we look at films that are generally lower than 50% on Rotten Tomatoes, and they are generally well-remembered, which I think you've got covered in this case. Oh, yeah. Uh, and before, And I, I want to say that we're not in the pocket of Big Tomato. We don't endorse Rotten Tomatoes. We're just using it as a metric. And for this film specifically, you can see some of the problems with... Um, review aggregation, uh, at least in terms yes. of finding out what reviewer, reviewers thought at the time, because nearly all the Rotten Tomato reviews that I saw for this film are from the year 2000 or later after internet criticism started to ramp up. Hmm. So you're seeing a lot of, of AV Club think pieces on like, hey, give it give it another chance. Right. I I honestly, I'm I'm team AV on that one. I think this movie does deserve another chance. Mm. Um and I'm fully willing to admit that some of this has to do with nostalgia. You know, I was talking to my husband about the movie, and one of the things that I really, truly love about this film is the way that it loves movies. You know, our our point of view character is Danny, this, you know, little boy, not little, but he's probably, what, 12, 13? Sure. Um, and he loves movies so much that he cuts school to go to them, which if I had the guts, I would never have shown up in school. Um, <laughs> I was I was too scared to cut, but man, respect. Uh, right. So anyway, Danny loves them so much. And Jack Slater is his hero. Jack Slater can do no wrong. He just, he has so much love for him. And the way that he gets excited about the new Jack Slater, man, that really spoke to young Melissa. Because I remember that feeling of being so excited for a movie to come out that you literally just were counting down days. Me you too, know? for this movie. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> See, I didn't see it until probably four or five years after it came out. Okay, okay. And so I missed all of the hype up, ramp up stuff. Sure, um, sure. For me, it was just, it was a movie rental. And by then, I had just only recently seen, like, Lethal Weapon and Die Hard and a lot of movies that this movie is parodying. Right. So uh, so it was very fresh and original to me because I couldn't believe that it was making fun of this. And honestly, a lot of the satire went right over my head at the time. Okay. Because it is an action movie. Yeah. Like, it is a big blockbuster action movie, just like it promises. Right. And a lot of it you don't pick up on the first viewing or, you know, the fourth viewing. Yeah. Even last night, uh, I rewatched the movie for this podcast, and I picked up some things that I had missed before. Like, it never really, I never really noticed that. So, at the beginning of the movie, you know, we open with uh, a flashback to the last film, but then when Danny starts watching Jack Slater 4 in the theater, right. the first scene of the movie within the movie is... Uh, an attack on Jack's favorite second cousin, Frank, which was an intentional joke 
Because yeah. at that point, by the fourth movie, all of Jack's family has been attacked and they're like running out of people for the bad yeah, guys to I go get after. It. Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Played by Art Carney in his last film role. Yes. Everybody talks about that. Yes. Uh, but so then the house explodes. There's two two cops go flying, a white cop and a black cop. And the black cop who's older looks up and goes, two days till retirement. Right. And then the lethal weapon saxophone goes. And that's what I never picked up until last night. I knew that it was a lethal weapon thing, but I didn't pick up the lethal weapon chords. That okay. Play. Sure. Sure. There are a lot of musical sort of leitmotifs in this. I didn't hear it uh, myself, but I read that uh, when Danny's, you know, making the argument to Jack about how, hey, you don't know if the guy's dead. It could be like uh, in Die Hard. Apparently, like the little tinkle of a Die Hard theme plays or something in the background. And also before they play chicken, of course, there's the, you know, the guitar, like the. There's even like there's a lot of interesting musical notes or musical cues, I should say, like uh, one of my favorite just you know, non-explosion scenes is when Jack first goes to the bad guy's house and he and Danny are questioning Benedict and uh, he snaps his fingers and the dogs stack on top of each other. (laughs) And you're supposed to be really scared because, you know, that's very threatening. And Charles does vocal threats, verbal threats, like nobody's business. Yeah. You know, by the way, much, many, many years later when, uh, Game of Thrones, like, first started airing, I was like, oh, yeah, it's the bad guy from Last Action Hero. <laughs> okay. That's I, my, that was my only reference. For I me. thought the good guy from Alien 3. Oh, there you go. Yeah, that's yeah. another way to look at it. But, uh, no, I hadn't even... I th- That's how I know Charles Dance. This movie sure. is how I know Charles Dance. Anyway, there's, like, this musical cue, or this uh, audio cue, where Jack, like, threatens him back, and then all the dogs go... <laughs> <laughs> Like, they're so scared. Yeah. Or at the end of the film, when Jack is swinging Danny up onto the building, and we're back in the real world now, where things are supposed to be all dark and realistic, but right. the audio cue is the, the a whip cracking. Okay. Like an Indiana Jones-style whip crack. And yeah, well, him. I'm glad you brought that up, because that is one of my sort of problems with the film. And sure, there's a lot to manage. Um, there are five different screenwriters, and they're trying to set, you know, a difference between the movie world and the real world. But yep. one of my complaints, and I think that it's a popular one among the film's detractors, is that there isn't much difference between the real world and the movie world. Well, cin- I think there is in terms of cinematography. Oh, yeah, they made a clear choice on that. Oh, yeah. And um, because the the real one of the things that I like is so in the in the early stages of Last Action Hero, the overall film that we're watching, you have this very clear divide between not just so New York is very dark and bleak. Hollywood in the Jack Slater universe is all sunshiny and bright colors and happy but also the movie theater has its own cinematography. Everything in there is gold. It's right. gold hues. It's very sort of warmly lit. It's clearly supposed to be like this haven for Danny. It's the one place where he feels happy. Right. So at the beginning of the film, you have this very d- clear distinction. But then later in the film, as Jack Slater sort of a- begins to adapt to New York, the difference in cinematography sort of folds in. Like, I thought it was more of a choice where they're trying to show that he is getting used to the real world. You know, it's the world's colliding. Yeah. 
And he's sort of becoming a part of the modern world. But they do have the little jokes where, you know, he punches in the car window and he's like, holy crap, that hurt. I think it's, yeah, I think you're meeting the movie more than halfway, but but I agree with your observations. Um, everything, and here's another problem that the movie has too, is that it never really, um, you mentioned the, like the opening and then also the opening of the um, Jack Slater 4 that he's watching within the yep. film. You've got this weird thing where, they do this fake out thing, which I think is a great idea and works pretty good where we're watching the end of Jack Slater three. Right. But it's it's the beginning of this movie as a and as a climax for Jack Slater three. That's a real crappy climax. Like that's not really like the last act or like last scene of a film. It's the opening scene of a film of this film in particular. But I, I don't know how much, you know, how much uh, they, they really uh, applied themselves to trying to to make the film seem like actual films. Actually, you know what? I, I have so many questions about this. Um, I could just go through in a list, I guess. <laughs> or you could just say things you like and I could try to tear them down. But oh, like, that sounds so fun. How, yeah, let's not do that, though. How does the magic ticket affect the world of the films in general? Like if Jack steps out of... This this cut of Jack Slater 4, right. does he disappear from all of them? No. One of the things I like about this movie, and I actually made a note of it, is that there's actual world building to this, which we sort of find out late in the movie when uh, Benedict starts like traveling into other films and bringing people out. Right. So that the impression that I always got is that each film is its own universe. Now, if you take Jack out of Jack Slater... I don't know if the Jack Slater 4 universe like freezes until he comes back. My kind of suspicion would be that it keeps everybody keeps going about their business. Cuz sure. you'll notice in in Jack Slater 4, everybody has things to do. Like they're all moving around busy busy little worker bees. And right. Jack is sort of this agent of chaos that bounces through them. Sometimes literally in his car. Did you <laughs> notice the the ridiculous ridiculousness of the bad driving oh i loved it right the only time that the car actually like parks is when it's parked by the valet person at the lapd right, right. like there's a moment where they leave a parking garage and for absolutely no reason jack starts going up the do not enter exit <laughs> yeah, yeah and then another car like starts down and it like bumps over to the right side for right. no reason i think destruction of the city is is one of the things they're kind of poking fun at here because at sure. one point, Danny's like, you destroyed even more of the city than usual. You know, so they're kind of making fun of the amount of damage that Jack does. Sure. Anyway, so your question was what happens in the other universes? I mean, is it a, it seems like it's a Purple Rose of Cairo situation where there's other prints of the film or whatever. This is just happening in like sort of one world. I suppose they do. So like Charles Dance, uh, Benedict, his character is, he goes and gets the Ripper and he gets the Ripper from Jack Slater 3. Yeah. So I so I assume that he has to explain to him. I don't know at what part of the movie he gets him, but he has to explain to him that Jack uh, Jack's going to kill you. So you want to get revenge on him. I don't think he does because the Ripper already hates Jack by the end of Jack. Right. Later 3. Right. But in the confrontation on the rooftop, he's like, oh, we've already played this scene. So he must not have come from that. Yeah. I guess my point is, is that I just don't, I'm the kind of person who, okay, so pitch me an action comedy fantasy. Wow, that's a lot of, that's a lot of quadrants there. I'm in, but like, I'm the kind of nerd that like, I'm going to, I'm going to double check the details. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe you could yeah. just sit back and go, oh, I get it. People come out of movies and you can go into them. But I'm, I'm like, wait a minute though. Like, I how, how, what I are the rules of your crazy universe? 
Because right, even because no. this movie is very referential, it, it literally references Looney Tunes like several times. Yes. And even in Looney Tunes, there are sort of rules. Um, you can't fall if you don't look down, for instance. <laughs> if you are squished yeah. flat, you can blow yourself back up again. I think there are certainly rules. We really see them at the end of the film when Ian McKellen as death. Man, I love that so much. Like the ticket sort of one of the themes of this movie is that the ticket has a mind of its own and it is not really playing by anyone's like it's not in favor of one team or another. You know, it's sort of a neutral force of of chaos. So the ticket falls in the theater where they are showing uh, the seventh seal and death walks out of that moment of the movie. Yeah. So my impression was always just that Benedict went to a movie that was playing Jack Slater three and waited until the Ripper was about to kill Danny or maybe had just killed Danny, but hadn't killed or hadn't tried to kill Jack yet. Uh, snatches him out and explains the real world. You do get a quick glimpse of Benedict like having this hilarious sit down like in a coffee shop or a diner or something <laughs> he's, with he's the Ripper. The, uh, yeah, yeah. Where he's like, look, you know, I know this is crazy, but bear with me and I'm going to give you everything you've ever wanted. And the Ripper's yeah. pretty nuts. I mean, we established that really early on. Right. Uh, by the way, the whole uh, active shooter at a school thing, not as fun anymore. No, not not really. Also, one of the prom- uh, promotional things they did for the film was had a giant Jack Slater holding dynamite that they uh, had in Times Square or something like that. Nice. And this, this, of course, is around the uh, time of the first world trade bombing. So they took that Ooh. down real fast. Yeah. Yeah, uh, there is. I did like how they um, you also see uh, Benedict like sitting around drinking coffee and like flipping through the movie ads. And yeah. he's like circling like and then, of course, like the one thing I like is um, that speech at the end when he's, um, you know, trying to shoot Jack and Danny on the rooftop. And he's like, oh, we'll get Frankenstein and we'll have this guy. Yes. in. And what yes. do you think about the- oh, Hannibal Lecter can do the Lecter catering, will do the catering. Yes. <laughs> but that promises to me a, a much bigger movie that like we never really got. The, the thing is. They could have made they could have gone in so many more directions with sequels to this movie. It wouldn't even need to be a Jack Slater movie. If what Danny it, yeah. has the ticket, he could have literally just walked into another movie and uh, and and the whole thing could have gone off there. Maybe yeah. he parodies horror movies where he like wanders into Scream 2 and is like, guys, guys, what are we doing oh, here? Oh no. Now we're into Zucker Brothers territory. Yeah. Um, or Abrams, yeah. Well, that's another question I have. Is this trying to do too much? Because there, and of course, like we said, there were like three, at least three rounds of uh, writing on it. I think at one point after Black had been fired and Goldman had brought been brought back on, or uh, brought on, uh, McTiernan went back to Black and said, can you fix this? And mm-hmm. so they made up and Black came back and tried to do some more. But it seems like we've got a Wizard of Oz story. Uh, which is a kid escaping into movies, uh, which is one type of film. We've got the original idea of the film, which is just like an action parody type thing. And then you've got all the elements that Goldman added. I think Goldman um, added the Benedict character uh, and perhaps the idea that, you know, there would be like movie villains or something like that. Is this is it too much for one movie? Because they've got two hours and 10 minutes to figure it out yeah. and it still doesn't really work. Well, and like I said at the beginning, I think it's about 20 minutes too long. Yeah, uh, the structure is really effed up because as you're watching it, 
you know, that the third act just naturally is, okay, they go to the real world. But they spend right. all that time in the middle, especially with that set piece with the Leo the Fart funeral where they're doing all that stuff. Yep. And it's like they want, and I know that was and written he wipes specifically. Off the tar. Yeah, there was written, well, I have a comment about that. Um, it's written specifically by Black and Arnett. Um, that's like a set piece they wanted in there. And my thing is, okay, this is still action as an action comedy fantasy. You want to have a big set piece, but that takes up weight. You could lose that and we lose nothing, you know, from the film. Um, excuse me. We would you lose the look elephant, <laughs> which is arguably this movie is so freaking quotable. <laughs> I have to say like the lines in this movie are so genius. Although by the way, I was, th- I was like 30 before I understood you want to be a farmer. Here's a couple of acres. Here's a couple of acres. Yeah. 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 We used to do like that to 30. each other all the time when we were kids. Aaron, yeah. Like 30. <laughs> Uh, uh yeah but like that whole part slows it all down it does, and yes. i think it's part of the movie fighting against its nature because it wants to be this action movie so you're going to need something big in the middle and to, to be honest the elevator stunts cool like when the elevator gets blown through by the helicopter and it falls apart and all that would fit perfectly in a diehard movie but while we're doing that we're not going back to the real world and paying off all the magic stuff mercedes rule is not in this movie nearly enough, but yeah. there's no reason for her to be because the movie doesn't take her seriously as a character. And also something else about the tar. The tar thing is the first time in a long time that Danny does anything to point out that this is a film. Like my idea was, okay, kid knows it's a film. I love the first maybe 20 minutes of the film. Like when he's watching the film and he's like, you know, thing blows up. He's fine. Minor wound both cops dead like yes. he's he's calling out the tropes but then he gets into the film and has no fun he's achieved his dream he's he's inside of an action movie and all he can do is try to undercut everything and try to prove to everybody that they're in a film instead of like i imagine a different film where he's using his knowledge of all the tropes and like succeeding and you know actually sort of forwarding the plot instead of no. trying to keep going why does that happen why does that happen yeah no i have to disagree though because he does When he first is sent into the film world, he does try to prove to Jack who he is. Because, frankly, Jack is demanding answers. And there isn't a great lie that will explain everything. But as soon as the captain assigns him and Arnold, well, him and Jack Slater to be partners, Dan has this moment of understanding where he's like, oh, okay, I'll teach you to be vulnerable. You'll teach me to be tough. Like, I get it. I see what we're doing here. And then he's into the crime and he's trying to find Benedict's house. You know, so he as soon as he understands what his part is. He has another realization later where he's been helping Jack and then he's on this bike and he decides to play chicken and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm actually just the comedy sidekick. Like, right, I but why did he ever die? Why did he think that would ever work, though? I think because he thought he was a partner and then he realizes, no, wait, <laughs> I'm not actually a partner. I'm not Riggs. I'm just, yeah, right, right. Right. I'm just a comedy sidekick and therefore expensive. <laughs> Yeah, I wish the movie would have just exploited uh, more things like that. Like, there's a part where he keeps... um, First of all, you mentioned guns before. This movie is pre-we're worried about, like, uh, depicting gun violence. Because a little kid is running around with a hand cannon, like, the entire film. And he'll get into a thing where Jack gets uh, tied up with the villain or the criminal, and he has to sort of do crowd control. And he'll run out and just go, blam, blam, blam. He's like... Hey, I need help. And everybody just scatters and runs, which is what would happen in real life. (laughs) You think that he'd be able to hold a gun on a guy that's operating a crane 
and then that guy would operate the crane. Or I just wish that there was some something that he knew about films or that he'd seen in a film that would allow him to exploit the universe that he's in. But instead, he just ends up being like a kid that doesn't belong in an action movie. Well, just because he's in the movie world doesn't mean he's part of the movie mythology. Right, but also, he's... Also, I think you're taking nitpicking to, like, next level. <laughs> oh, oh, Like, there are okay. so many big things that you could critique about this movie, and you're upset because people run away when a kid waves a gun? Well, I'm upset that this kid spends so much time with the old guy that runs the theater. Like, if I was his mom... She's a bad mom. Like, we know that he's fine. He just loves Harry Houdini in movies, but... That's a, that's probably a toxic relationship. What? Oh my gosh, dude! What is wrong with you? Okay, Why all right. Are you putting like a you're a mother vibe on something you don't know anything about. You're a mother. I I'm am. gonna. Uh, here's an old guy. Um, I'm gonna minute, have your so kids. I have girls. Okay. Well. Oh boy. Even better. It's a different. That's a different thing. I don't know why it is, but it is. But okay, no, right. I. Th- there's nothing to suggest that she's never gone to the theater or met this guy. Well, like, she didn't seem to like... She says um, she refers to the crazy old man, so she's met him. Then <laughs> she knows that he's crazy. Well, she... You say that about a lot of people without actually thinking that they have a certifiable mental illness. Why doesn't she know who Schwarzenegger is? What do you mean? So, Danny shows up, um, like, the fourth, third or fourth time he's been out all night, and he shows up with Jack, that now kid fresh from... needs, like, consequences, by the way. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Um, well, he's latchkey. What do you want? Uh, they, um, he shows up with Jack uh, coming out of the movie. Yep. And we know that other people see Jack in the real world and they, you know, he looks, they know who Arnold Schwarzenegger is. Right. And she's just so, you know, ignorant of films and television that she doesn't know what Arnold Schwarzenegger looks like. Well, do you, first of all, he was not yet the governor. So you had to <laughs> be a movie true. person to yeah, I guess. Was. And she listens to classical music. Right. She's an NPR lady. Right, right. All we really know about this woman is that she works at night. And I'm thinking, like, maybe waitress, judging by her outfit. Possibly. Yeah. Um, and, and she listens to classical music. And she's frantic about her son, who she can't control because he runs out at night when she really has no way of stopping him. So right. I don't, I'm not real upset that she doesn't recognize Arnold Schwarzenegger. Like, yeah. This woman has a lot going on. Just you know? one line about how, oh, yeah, I get that a lot or something. But I want to go back to what you were talking about with the film structure, because I've been thinking Please about do. that a lot. And sure. I think it's bloated, but there's actually a very clear three-act structure, which is kind of funny. Like, okay. the, the first act is, I mean, you know, the the inciting incident, Danny's in California, right? Right. Well, he's in the, the Jack Slater film. That's act one. But it's, well, well, it really runs up until the moment where he and Jack are made partners. Because the the sort of plot of that first act is Dan, this magical thing happens to Danny. Nobody believes him. He doesn't know what he's doing. Then mm. you have this flip where now act two is Jack and Danny solving crime. And now belief no, no no longer really matters. It doesn't matter right. that Jack doesn't really believe him because, you know, they're chasing Benedict and they're meeting Whitney and uh, the fighting of the bad guys and getting yelled at by the captain uh, and all that stuff. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it no longer really matters who believes who. And then act three is very clearly Jack goes to New York and that act is so much less happy 
than the previous ones because it's about this soul sober realization for Jack that he's imaginary and that yeah. everything that's happened to him down to like the death of his child was made up for someone's amusement. So there's right. kind of a weird like existential. So I, I think the structure is pretty clear. It's just that the mood of the film changes so drastically. In that's between, a great point. You know, and I respect and I respect them totally because, again, that's another maybe a Purple Rose of Cairo situation, but that's another great commentary on the sort of stories that we tell and the things that we do to characters. Yes. Um, as an author, I think you could appreciate that. Yeah. But it's too late in the third act. It's underwritten and it's underperformed by Schwarzenegger, who I would not expect to be able to pull off something like that. Like, I wouldn't ask of that of him, but I don't think that it really comes through all that well. Well, you're wrong. You're wrong about all the bad things you're saying. Just so you okay. know. All right, good. I want to talk about another film that um, has a kind of similar premise and deals with something um, sort of metafictional. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Oh, which I'm afraid I haven't seen since I was like 12. Well, that's fine. That's fine. Um, but it has a similar structure. Um, mm -hmm. They go to Toontown for kind of the late second act mm -hmm. uh, in, in a similar way. And then they come back and solve the problem in the real world. And it gets it done in like an hour 44. Okay. I feel like the setup of this movie is too long. I mean, I don't know how long it takes to show us that New York is, is a crap sack. Like, we got that. And there's this whole weird scene where the, the burglar breaks in and, like, threatens Danny. Which is very dark. And it, I think that's in line dark. with showing us how cruel but, the real world is so that later yeah, but a little on bit of, it can be effective for Jack to I suppose. It. Yeah, I guess. But, I mean, a little bit of rain and some uh, porno movie marquees, and we know how bad New York is. Well, think of later in the movie when uh, there are muggers stealing, like robbing and killing people for their shoes. Like in order for yeah. that to pay off, you almost sort of have to have a beat of it being bleak early in the movie. Otherwise, yeah. because, man, first of all, I love Charles Dance finding out that he can kill people. <laughs> Excuse me. I've just yeah. shot someone. I did it on purpose. Yes. And the way he delivers that, like just with just pompous joy is so fantastic. Sure. Uh, An entire movie of that, please. Right. And so I, I think that, that you kind of need the sort of unhappiness of Danny's life also so that you can understand why this escapism into the movies is so important to him and yeah. why he keeps sneaking out night after night, even though it breaks his poor mother's heart. Um, mm. You know, I, 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 I don't disagree that this movie is too long. And you need to make cuts somewhere. But I also don't think that's a terrible scene to include. When I was a kid, it's, it was really scary. Yeah, yeah. Well, it scared me as a, as a whatever I was, a mid-teen or whatever. You know, that's part of his journey. Like, he starts out as not a, not a wimp exactly, but a very passive kid. Yeah, when yeah, when the mugger comes, he doesn't really do anything, say anything when yeah. he's in school and he's like, you know, daydreaming, daydreaming about Hamlet rather than like participate in the discussion and say, man, this is boring. Let's talk about someone else. When his mom yells at him, he just kind of takes it and apologizes. He doesn't say, you leave me alone every night, man. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> yeah, he's a very true. passive kid. And yeah. so part of his interacting with part of his sort of realizing he's a character in Jack Slater and he has to do things to move the plot right. and the running around waving guns, which, again, was pre active shooters in school. Yeah. Uh, so I don't think we can blame it on that one. 
No, no. Uh, you know, that's all part of his journey to, like, becoming an active participant in his life. What, what do you think the plot of Jack Slater 4 would have been if Danny hadn't been there? Oh, that's a great question. Like, that's a really great question. You know, Jack says when they're in the real world and they're trying to find Benedict, he says clues just sort of present themselves. <laughs> right. Uh, and I think that is what would have happened is if Danny did, wasn't there to provide this eyewitness clue, a different clue would have fallen in Jack's lap. Because that's sure. the thing that comes along with, you know, creators killing your entire family. You at least have an easy time of being a cop. Right, right. There's plenty of people to avenge. Yeah, like your second favorite second cousin. Right. By the way, I love that it's almost always phrased my favorite second cousin Frank with as though that he has like six or seven second cousins named Frank, but this one right. is the favorite. This is the one. This yeah. is the one. <laughs> Played by Matters. veteran actor Art Carney. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Uh, speaking of some of the actors in the film, this has got a, a really great cast, I think, does, for what it yeah. is. And I'm amazed that a lot of the people, you can definitely tell how big of a star uh, Schwarzenegger was, uh, and also the director and the screenwriter and everybody involved that a lot of these people signed on. Um, you've got F. Mary Abraham, who's in it as a joke. As like I think the that third it, villain. Right, as a third villain, yeah. Who basically, and as the third villain, you'd have to imagine that he was cast just for the, the Salieri joke. Yeah. yeah, just so they can be like, don't trust him, man. He killed Mozart. Right. And then later they're like, who's Mozart? Oh, I kill a lot of people. I don't know. I kill a lot of people. I don't know. Yeah. Um, which, you know, if that's and he took it just for fun and for the paycheck, then good on him, I guess. Uh, like you said, Charles Dance, of course. And this is like pre, you know, a lot of stuff for Charles Dance. I mean, he wasn't really a big name, but it was kind of cool. But Anthony a Quinn was a big name. Anthony T. Quinn was absolutely a big name and yeah. didn't have to do this at all, but he right. did. Uh, uh, Ian McKellen, we're way off of Gods and Monsters here, so this is not um, – or even Bent. Like, he's not a household name yet. Um, I thought it was funny that uh, Joan Plowright, uh, oh, Olivier's last, last wife. Or, uh, yeah. Olivier, yeah. Yeah, uh, played the teacher in that scene. And then, then of course, there's Austin O'Brien, who plays oh, Danny yeah. Madigan. Oh, Austin O'Brien. I um I think you you're going to have a hard time defending him. I don't I'm not particularly troubled by him as okay. as a child actor. Sure. Uh I mean I I wouldn't defend his career now. He hasn't made a movie since 2015. No, this was Yeah, but as far as like A-list stuff, this is pretty much it for him. Well, no, he also did My Girl too. My Girl too. I'm sorry. So, shut up. That's right. I did say A-list. Oh, and he did the <laughs> Babysitters Club movie. Oh, did he? <laughs> Uh, I'm on IMDb right now. I am cheating like nobody's business. Oh, well, that's uh, although I do always remember him from my girl too, because, um, I liked that movie so much better than my girl because I was a child and my girl was really upsetting, but my girl too oh, yeah. is like this fun movie. I try, I try to imagine what it would have been like if they had had a better, uh, kid actor and you know, it's tough. Like kids aren't great actors all the time. No. Um, but if, if the if Danny had been more, I don't know, he's just kind of really earnest and sort of whiny and you don't really believe his deliveries. Like if there was just some like 90s version of Haley Joel Osment or something like that, I think that I would have believed uh, and been more invested in it. Wasn't Haley Joel Osment the 90s version of Haley Joel Osment? He was pretty young in was sixth he? sense, Oh, I right? have no idea. Okay. Yeah, that was 99, so... Um, yeah, honestly, Austin O'Brien doesn't bother me. Uh, 
I could see why some people might be bothered by him, but it's really not his movie. He's the POV, you know, like he really exists to walk us through everything else. I don't yeah. need him to give us an Oscar. Like I don't need Jacob Tremblay in the room right now. You know, <laughs> like just, just get us to Arnold, do your thing. Sure. will be fine. <laughs> you know, I want to remake uh, with Jacob Tremblay as Danny Madigan in the uh, remake of last action hero. I would, I would pay money for that. But frankly, I still pay money for this. Actually, no. Hold, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Oh my gosh. It's a reboot, but it's a continuation of Room. So they're out of the room now. This is getting Brie Larson is in the Mercedes Rule role. Uh, the little kid from the room, he grew up watching TV. He doesn't understand that it's, you know, it, it's magic or it's not or it's the real world or it's not. And so then he's introduced to this ticket and it's all connected. We could do a room universe, a roomiverse. Are you drinking during these podcasts? <laughs> That's the only way I can get through it. Oh my gosh, this I is love last this action movie. hero. I don't care. I love it. All right. All right, fine. Uh, by the way, I had forgotten that the the so I was thinking about the unnecessary car chase, like the initial one at the beginning of this film, where uh, they're actually in the riverbed. Yeah, like they have to go to the LA River. Yeah, of course. I thought yeah. that was fantastic, but uh, yeah. the the puns in this movie are like <laughs> next level. Iced that yeah. one to cone a phrase. Like a level up or down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, to cone a phrase. Right, I actually right. was trying to make a list of like, so that I could nominate a best pun for for when we did this this podcast. And honestly, I think I'm going to have to settle on got to catch the red eye. That's that's a pretty good one. <laughs> like, the you have to remember that this movie is insists upon being an example of the genre that it's satirizing. Yeah. So it you know like you if you look at something like not another teen movie that's just right. a parody. They're not really trying to have a cohesive plot and be an example of the film. You know, no, they're it's just all sending up of tropes, yeah, right, it's right. All it's imitation for for humor. And that's fine. That you know that is what it is. But last section hero, you can agree with this decision or you can disagree with this decision. I see it both ways. It insists upon being part of the genre. Right Now, I can see a case for that's why it becomes kind of a mess, but I also see a case for that's what makes it interesting because yeah. you have so much satire, but you also have a good time as long as you're not Aaron who gets weird about <laughs> the mythology of the t- – like it's a fucking magic ticket, pardon my language. I, I'm all about – yeah, but – but that's the other thing. So, oh, the world of movies is this weird, weird world where all these things happen. Danny, you live in a world where magic is real. Like, this is a magic ticket. Magic is real in their universe. Yeah. Well, no, no. In no, the no, real wait. world. Houdini had actual magic. Who, by the way, uh, was not like a close-up magic guy. Like, he was an escape artist. And he, oh he committed the gosh, last... Dude. He committed the last half of his life to debunking mystics and mediums but and, like, part and of magic. That was because he desperately wanted them to be real. To talk to his dead mom. He wanted yeah. to believe. Okay? Yeah. He is the he original... He was the Fox Mulder of his believe, time. So. Right, right. No, I, I think that it's a lot like... Um, you know, Hitchcock never explained the like he never got deep into the why are the birds freaking out and attacking everybody? Oh, sure. You yeah, know? it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's a thought experiment. If X were real, how would Y play out? 
And yeah. and that's how I see this movie. If you really it, could get in and out of your favorite movies and you give this power to a kid who's like I whose hero is uh Jack Slater, an Arnold Schwarzenegger character, what would happen? Yeah. But you know, one thing that you haven't brought up and I'm very surprised is that Blockbuster has a cameo in this movie. Well, it has to. It's all about movies. And can we talk about how they dress at the Blockbuster in Jack Slater 4 world? Is that how you dressed when you worked at Blockbuster? You know, it is so funny because we did. <laughs> like, that exact outfit was my regulation uniform. You know, What was Angie Everhart like? Like, was she a nice co-worker? Or? Uh, you know, she was... You know, it's funny that you say that because when I worked at the Blockbuster in Beverly Hills, which I really did, I really <laughs> did wait on Angie Everhart once. Did you? Oh, I'm not making right. that up. That is a true thing that happens. Okay. All right. Uh, so that's why I was laughing last night. But, uh, you know, also because it's a, it's just the whole Blockbuster scene is hilarious. Everything yeah, about yeah. it is funny, especially if you work. It's, it's like three times as funny. If you worked in a Blockbuster... And you know what kind of grunt work it is to just be okay. There's nobody in that store, and they're not like dusting shelves or like doing inventory or anything. They're basically just standing around posing. Right, right, right. And even and in Beverly a... Hills, because I worked there, we had to do inventory. Oh sure, of course. Or put up the uh, Stallone in T two standees. Oh yeah, yeah, Stallone. I do like that joke. in this. <laughs> I'm hey, I'm all for going through these tropes and like making fun of them. But for me, it's more like I like the clever uh, sort of observations or like the clever like additions. Yeah. Like, for instance, in that chase where they're uh, fighting the gang in the um, a classic truck that's throwing dynamite at them. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Acme Dynamite. There's a minivan and the door opens and a minigun comes out. And it's like just to me that that was funny. Or how about the funeral for the mobster where everybody, including like the nuns and the 80 year old grandparents are armed with like Uzis. Right. Yeah. Well, that's kind of like a mafia. Remember yeah. mafia starring yeah, yeah. his name? Yeah. Uh, what, that's kind of a joke from one that. One of my favorite Arnold moments is when he fall in, in that same funeral sequence, he falls in slow motion off the elevator, right? Because right. he was holding a piece of the elevator and it breaks off. And so right. slow motion as he slowly <laughs> falls and as yes. he's falling, he's like, huh, what's going on? And he reaches under his arm for the piece of elevator that was anchoring him. And That's our Wiley Coyote moment. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It really is a Wiley Coyote <laughs> moment. And it's so yeah. funny. Uh, that and when he confronts the real Arnold at the end of the film, I don't really like you. You've brought me nothing but pain. Yeah, which again is one of those really dark moments at a point and where. Really funny. Well, it, yeah, I mean it's funny, but it's you, you think that okay, we're they're chasing the Ripper down. We're going to have this sort of ebullient like action thing, and he's like, "I don't really like you," and it's like, "Wow, Arnold, what are you trying to say about like your career and like your legacy so far?" I, you know, there you can watch this entire movie with that question in mind, and it's kind of interesting. <laughs> Yeah, but as you said, like, you know, he's producing now, so he's got, like, a hold on things. You know, one moment that I think is really interesting is when, okay, so in the film, Arnold Schwarzenegger, playing himself, is mm -hmm. is walking into the movie premiere, and his wife goes, don't plug the restaurants. So tacky when you plug the restaurants. And he's like, yeah. I won't, I won't. And then five minutes later, he's plugging the restaurants, and she, like, yanks him away. And it's funny, but there's so many levels here where, like, He's poking fun at himself and his reputation. But at the same time, by doing this, 
he's plugging the restaurants. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I've heard this described as Planet Hollywood, the movie. Uh, I don't think that's entirely fair, but uh, because it's it's more about Danny and his and his thing. Arnold Arnold in that moment is that that moment is very kind of indicative of his whole attitude about this movie. He wants to poke him, you know, poke fun at himself, but gently and with a purpose. So do you think then, and this is the, usually the part of the movie where we talk about like why critics rejected it, but we can talk about audiences too. Do you think, why do you think that audiences weren't buying into it then? Uh, because at this point, like we've got, it's Arnold, he's post T2, there's six planet Hollywoods across the country. You know, he's making this movie and expecting all to la- us all to laugh along with him. And the audiences didn't really do that. I honestly think it's because this movement was still at work. If you go back and you look at the great film satires in history, Young Frankenstein, Scream, um, even like the first scary movie movie. Hudson Hawk. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. I haven't seen that in a long time. But if you look at all of them, they came out either well after or at the tail end of a trend, right? Sure. They You don't make fun of the trend until you're done enjoying it. That's a, that's a thing. That's a rule. Uh, by the time Scream, ca- Scream came out, nobody had made a teen slasher movie in years and years. And so it comes out and it's very self-referential. Uh, mm-hmm. So you wait until people are getting sick of something, and that's when you come out. Now, what, I don't know if you saw the same thing I did on the IMDb or maybe the Wikipedia page for Last Action Hero. They compare it to Deadpool. And I did I see that. I that was kind of an interesting comparison. I mean, I think Deadpool is just objectively a better film. But, you know, we were kind of having this burnout on superhero movies, and just when everybody is like, Oh, there are no new takes on this. It's getting so boring. It's the same stuff. Here comes Deadpool, which is making fun of a superhero movie while still being a superhero movie. Like, I think Deadpool succeeds at all the things that Last Action Hero was earnestly trying to do. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think the the missing ingredient there in the comparison is that I think Hollywood has a real hard time making fun of itself. I don't think it, I don't mean hard. They do it at the drop of a hat, but I don't think they do it very well. And I would compare it to, I heard once somebody describe um, the uh, phenomenon that like often rock stars don't make good actors. Um, I don't know, Mick Jagger or, you know, whatever. Um, Because the whole character of being a rock star is being an outsized personality. It is projecting, you know, this idol that people need to pay attention to and love and vulnerability is the key to um, many performances, if not all performances. And so it's hard to make that transition. And I think that Hollywood is so much about hooray for Hollywood and the glitz and the spectacle that when it comes down to them really pointing out what's really ironic and funny and laughable about themselves, they don't, they don't do it very well. Well, I would say I think that they do it well, but they have to, they will only serve it with a healthy dose of also love for for the industry. R- yeah, right. And I yeah, think a really good rare, example of yeah, this great point. is Entourage, which oh, with, that's a great point. Which is often a show about excess, and it's often it's it's overall incredibly sexist, but in its finer moments, and it does have some, it does have a very dead on accurate. Uh, 
sort of critique of Hollywood. But then it always has to be couched in this fantasy of wealth and privilege and access. You know, so there are times when it does have very scathing sort of comments to make, but only surrounded by a gentle nest of love. One of my favorite films is The Player, um, the Robert Altman film, mm -hmm. which is a, um, a similar sort of send up of the industry, but it's it's very cynical. And it basically a guy gets away with murder just, you know, based on the fact that he's a producer and he can sort of do that. Right. And even though Altman is a famous director, you know, he's he's an outsider. He's a Hollywood outsider. So I think that he is prepared to take the kind of shots and go to the lengths that you would need to go to to really make a point about, you know, what you see in Hollywood. You know what movie I watched again recently? It was one of those moments that I think we all have where you're flipping channels and a movie is just starting and you maybe haven't seen it for a while or it's, you know, whatever. For whatever reason, sure. you land there and then you don't leave Right. Uh, and that was America's Sweetheart. Do you remember okay. that movie? I remember it. I don't think I saw it, though. You never saw it? Oh. No. The, honestly, like, it shares so much with Last Action Hero. Down to really? the, like, it, it had a very complicated series of, like, starts and stops uh, before it was made. So Billy Crystal okay. actually wrote America's Sweetheart for himself to do. Uh <laughs> Like he wrote the the John Cusack role for himself and he couldn't get financing for the film. And by the time he was able to get financing, he was he had really aged out of the part. So yeah. they get John Cusack, who at the time was doing all these romantic comedies to play the romantic right. lead, which which is fine, except they have a very different energy as actors. You know, Billy Crystal is has the He's really the when Harry met Sally persona with kind of a fast talking, cool kid that's also a little bit nebbishy and, you know, he's not going to win any fights, but he'll he's got, you know, the smart he's the smart Alec. And then John right. Cusack is is much more of like the brooding loner guy. And that's where where his cool kind of comes from. So they yeah. had to do rewrites to make room for to make way for John Cusack. And then Julie Roberts signs on, but she wants the supporting role. And what you end up with is Catherine Zeta-Jones doing this brilliant satire of a movie star, very similar to like uh, Anna Faris in Lost in Translation. Uh, and then you have so much about America's Sweetheart that really lands. Like they have so many points to make about the way media covers movies and the way they obsess about celebrity relationships far past the point where it's sane or reasonable and okay. and how that whole thing is a machine that feeds itself because the, you know, everybody participates. And Christopher Walken plays this sort of, I wouldn't say Robert Altman-esque, but his character is very similar and that he's sort of seen as this auteur who gets to play, who like he comes to play in Hollywood and everybody's like honored that he's there, you know? Okay. And, sure. and he holds the film hostage that they made for most of the junket, just to mess with people like for no reason. Hang Azaria. This is, he plays, he does some of the uh, white face thing, uh, whitewashing, which is not cool. Huh. But it's before well, that's his that whole was career, really but... a well-known thing. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of this movie is garbage because the energy doesn't work with. <laughs> well, geez, I was, was... <laughs> was going to have you come back on it. It's 32% on Rotten Tomatoes. I but, would totally uh, if... talk about this movie forever, but I think we would be treading a lot of the same ground. 
because yeah. it's very much about Hollywood satire, but it doesn't quite have the guts. Like it pulls the punch, you know? Sure. It sure. wants to be a romantic comedy. At the same time, it's lampooning the industry that makes romantic comedies. Yeah. So that's the, this is the second time in a row, but that's literally the have your sesame cake and eat it too moment. Yay! Yay! By the way, I'm super disappointed that you don't make the title of these podcasts like a ridiculous statement that we make during the podcast, like they do for <laughs> like Pod Save America. Because I really oh, okay. wanted this episode to be called Look Elephant. I It could be. Maybe a subtitle. Maybe a I'm subtitle? trying to be real serious and businesslike. Oh, all right. Fine. That's not fun. This it's is obviously fun. a very serious and businesslike movie. <laughs> it certainly is. Look, honestly, uh, nothing you can say will diminish my love for Last Action Hero. I would never want to. But I, But I do want to make a quick point about that. Because one of the things that I think about a lot is why fandom works the way it does. Like there are people who feel so abused by the X-Files, but they keep watching the X-Files. There are people who oh, feel sure. so abused by Game of Thrones and they will be the loudest critics about it, but they will never stop watching and they will buy That's the merchandise hate watching. and they will and own all the little stupid Lannister shields and whatnot. Like, yeah. And walking dead. Uh, uh, don't get me started on stupid walking dead. <laughs> but my my point is that like a while ago I figured out that fandom means <laughs> never having to say you're sorry. No, that kind of <laughs> that recognizing that something is flawed and just adoring it anyway. Like I feel this way about Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which has two very weak seasons, and most of the other seasons have at least one episode that just totally falls flat, but I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Uh, sure. And I feel the same way about Last, Last Action Hero. Like, I can you can that. point out the flaws forever, and they're so there. And I would not deny that it is a very flawed movie. But at the same time, because of the way it feels about movies, it, it really touched me in my dead little heart when I was a, <laughs> a teenager and a very impressionable. And that I can totally understand is that. so much more valuable than the sum of its parts you know yeah well i know i get that i mean you know i love the hudson hawk which itself is very much a looney tunes send up like a character literally oh. gets blown up and yeah. then is all you know black with soot which also have so, the last action hero by the way yeah yeah it does just the thing is is that like i don't think i've ever been met anybody who has really loved the film before Wait, so really? i have a lot of questions you should maybe my little sister can be a guest next time before we started recording like my sister and i honestly call each other up and yell look elephant and <laughs> well can we talk about how 90s this film is oh it's so 90s it's all the 90s that ever 90s yeah it is, right? yeah it's it's kind of peak uh, 90s in only 1993, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, it is. Um, for some reason, and this isn't 90s at all, but for some reason, Little Richard shows up in the film. Oh, all of the, all of the cameos, and there are a lot of cameos, are are stars right. who are very famous in 1993, and many of them not so much anymore. Yeah, yeah. MC Hammer's in there. Um, Lisa Gibbons, who I guess is probably still around somewhere, uh, but was really yeah, big I don't, with I don't know. through ET back then. Um, you get Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is in it, and I get the feeling that he's in it just because 1993, of course, was when the Chevy Chase show was on for a glorious six weeks. 
I never saw the Chevy Chase show. Oh, well, you didn't miss anything. Oh, good. Well, hey, I will not put that on my list then. Yeah. Um, and Danny DeVito, Sharon Stone. Yeah. So, okay. All right. Now, I'm going to ask you a question about the universe of the movie, and I want you to be comfortable with that. Well, I'm I'm not afraid of you, so go for it. Okay. So, this movie supposes that or this movie posits that there is one i guess police station in all of <laughs> oh movie dumb that all the characters <laughs> go in and out of so we see the t-1000 we see um Catherine trammell from uh, basic instinct but my question is they then go to a movie store and see a standee for t2 so mm-hmm. what is it like is there a deeper like wreck it maybe robert kind patrick of... wasn't in this Sylvester Stallone T2. <laughs> so he's just a cop or something? Yeah, maybe he's just a cop, man. This is an alternate okay. universe. I could see it. See, I'm positing a, a Wreck-It Ralph style like central node where they all kind of can congregate in one place, but then they go off to their cyber like idea, movie uh, with the ladies in the yeah. booty shorts, you know, with the robot faces and stuff like that. Well, it's kind of like how, you know, like when I'm drinking at a party, I'll get into my theory about Arnold Schwarzenegger movies and how there are like two timelines in which all his movies exist. Okay, so, give give us the short version. Uh, th- well, okay, first of all, there's give us the no sober short version, version, I guess. But yeah, I'll, give us I'll, the sober version. I'll give you a, a, a small example, which is okay. that there's no reason why Commando and Predator couldn't be like a sequel situation. Sure. Because there's like the daughter and he's out, he goes out on these missions and he comes back, you know, he's kind of leaving her. So it, it really works. And then you could have this cop Kind of he he transfers departments and he deci- and he's assigned to go to this kindergarten, right? <laughs> right. And yeah, and be yeah. a teacher and he doesn't really like that very much. Um. And so he, oh, I had this whole thing all like flow charted once. I'm not kidding, but I think it was on a bar <laughs> napkin. So, uh, okay. and that one leads into True Lies, of course, because he right. always have has one daughter. By the way, like. Yeah, that that's like a thing. So you you have the like the Predator timeline, which is the action movies. I'm sorry, it would technically be the Commando timeline, which is the action movies. And then you would also have the comedy timeline, which starts with like twins, okay. and runs through like Junior, and um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I can do this whole thing about it. So okay, it, it's not that I actually really believe it, but it's like the whole theory that all the Pixar movies are set in the same universe. It's a fun thing to think about. I would posit that Predator would come first because to, yeah, because yeah, he's kind of a, a hiccup in the system. But I don't know because there's I don't think there's any drinking. At the bar. <laughs> well, yeah, okay, sure. Uh, yeah, no, because he comes Predator. He has this mission in Predator, and then he comes home, and Commando right. opens with him coming home to his daughter. Yes, uh, he can't tell her what his mission was about. It's not no, like, no. It's a great story too, but he can't tell. Yeah, no, he can't right. say anything. Let me add to your theory. Then, in this case, I guess Last Action Hero is a movie in his universe. It would have to be yes. Yes. So it's not. He's not the Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's not uh, yeah. Jack Slater. Yeah, it's just Jack a movie Slater that has is one on. Daughter and an ex-wife. Yeah. So if you that's right. You bend some rules. Jack Slater could be. You know, if the actor, if the child is played by a different older actress, why couldn't it be part of the Commando Predator timeline? Okay. 
So, oh, the Commander Predator one. Well, we do see his wife for sure in True Lies. So perhaps yeah. th- that's a prequel and they, um, they, she becomes a spy, but they break up and now uh, he's, no, 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 you no, know, no. he's a that cop might in L.A. Be his second or even his third wife. Oh, okay. That's a subsequent marriage. Okay. Yeah, no. you gotta, we you need a flowchart for this. Chrono- chronological about this, man. If you're really going to be serious about this work. <laughs> if you're taking this ridiculous thing seriously, come on. I did like that line. That's the kind of thing that I wanted more of out of Last Action Hero is when Jack's like, oh, I hope my ex-wife's not around. And he's like, uh, Danny's like, oh, I didn't see your name in the credits. We're okay. Yeah, that was like that sort of meta humor is like that really worked for me. I like there's there's a lot of great meta moments. And, you know, before I forget, when we were talking about lampooning Hollywood, one thing that I I think bears mentioning is that Shane Black is one of the few screenwriters who gets away with more than others on this. If you think about okay. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, oh it yeah, is well, very that's... mean. Yeah, and it's fueled by his own experience. Oh yeah, definitely. And it's yeah. it's very mean and it doesn't really pull punches with that. I mean, right. it could it have gone deeper, probably, but then it wouldn't really be a comedy. Um, yeah, but you know, the, just the way think... you go to a party and somebody's like, "What do you do?" and and he makes oh, up some boy, bullshit answer, you. and she just turns and walks away, and he's like, "Oh, so <laughs> that's it? That we're done?" <laughs> or right, the thing where she talks about how somebody is so old because they're thirty five, like they hit thirty five and it's over. It's over, baby. You missed it. And how old are you? Oh, I'm thirty four. Thirty four. Which, by the way, I'm thirty four right now, so I'm quite youthful still. Right, right. But the exactly. clock is ticking, man. You haven't missed it. No, no I haven't missed still it time. yet. I agree. Um, and he certainly wa- – I mean he's known as an action director. But if you look at all of his films, there's comedy in comedy there. Comedy action, yeah. But I – oh, he definitely. I mean Lethal well. Weapon, Last Boy Scout. He does, but it, not perfectly. I wish that he would – like he worked with this David Arnott guy for a while. I wish that he would get hooked up with somebody who was like real funny because I think a lot of his jokes do work, especially when they're really specific like the ones that you mentioned about Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. But then he'll put these funny moments in that are like funny for somebody maybe. Like he can't resist but, it. Like it doesn't yeah, quite yeah, fit exactly. what's around it, but he just can't, yeah, that, can't resist the joke. Exactly, yeah. Ah. Um, Last, Boy, Last Boy Scout is full of ones like that where it's like I get that you think that's hilarious, but if you tweaked it a little bit, it would work better for an audience or even for the world it. of the film. Yeah. yeah to yeah. be fair, as a writer, like I kind of sympathize because I think we've all had that Because <laughs> you just want to write what you want to write. Where You're right, you just, yeah. Like there are jokes that I have typed up and then like sadly, <laughs> weepingly deleted but when I do that, I don't hold down the delete button. I have to go like delete, delete, delete individual delete. just to, because that's the mourning period. You know, that's when right, you right, right. That's doing, how you say goodbye. Is doing the individual <laughs> key smacks. I think Shane Black, uh, he can, there are a lot of things that he can do well, and I think that his action comedy blend is better than most of them around. I think. His Iron Man three doesn't get enough play. Um, he he does really well with the Tony Stark humor. Yeah, but then he did. Uh, he recently did uh, the Nice Guys, and that was weaker. I have one more question. I know you're not afraid of me, so take yeah, I'm not this about the, the 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 plot armor of the or the just the um the particulars of how things work in this world. Jack leaves his movie. He's you know he's now no longer has plot armor. He's human. Yep. But death leaves his movie, and he's still death. Uh, he's got death power. He's Ian McKellen. <laughs> what is Ian wrong? McKe- with you? Oh, 
That's right. Yeah, Ian McKellen just has a lot of lists about when people are going to die. Uh, that but I, I wait a minute. Believe. Do we actually see death kill anyone in the real world? No, I suppose not. No. There's there's one other there's one other thing that that I was kind of confused about is that you know when Jack Slater leaves his movie, he's in sort of a sort of wide shot, so he's human sized, I guess. Sure. But when we see Ian McKellen as Death leave his movie, it's in a close up, and so the, you get that neat looking uh, shot, but a shot that doesn't really make a lot of sense, where his gigantic scythe comes out of the screen. Okay. Does it like shrink down like once he sets foot on the ground? Would you say that the the scythe is smaller in reality? Is that your argument? Your questions confuse me. <laughs> I what, what I'm what I've got out of this is that if you don't ask enough uh, a lot of questions, then this is this is a good movie. To be fair, though, what modern action movie would you not say that about? And I'm gonna I'm gonna point a couple of big ass fingers at Captain America: Civil War here because what the <laughs> hell was that bad guy's plan? He, there was no, yeah, his, he was some kind of mutant himself and his power was to see in the future that he'd be able to know exactly when the UPS guy is going to get there or whatever. He I agree. He goes to a ridiculous amount of trouble to gain access to super soldiers and then he shoots them. Right. So he can hang out and go, ha ha, I shot them. Right. That guy is the worst. He is the worst <laughs> bad guy. Uh, so yeah. I, I don't think that it's fair to point a finger at just last action hero for that. Because oh no, I wouldn't. Every almost every modern action movie I can think of does is guilty of the exact same thing. That's fair enough. Well, on the show we like to talk about what other critics thought, contemporary critics of the time, in our segment called "Pick of the Patch." And I had to look at this in particular because we talked on the last show about how I filed for divorce from Entertainment Weekly after they gave Fight Club an F. Uh, but this, of course, was years before 1999. And here's what EW critic Owen Gleiberman had to say about the film. Last Action Hero is a perverse spectacle, a stupid generic slab of action bombast that keeps reminding us it's a stupid generic slab of action bombast. It's a lead balloon of a movie so top-heavy with referential cuteness that it never begins to levitate as a fantasy. He gave it a D. Couldn't you imagine him giving the exact same review to Deadpool? Oh, my God. Think about it. Yeah. What in that statement wouldn't also apply to Deadpool? And he's still a crit. Well, I'm going to look up his uh, his review after this is over. He, yeah, I don't know if he did or not. Um, but the, it, it's interesting to look at a lot of these reviewers because a lot of them, you know, reviewed it later. And they use words like yeah. clever and intriguing. And that's true. Um, yeah. It works as a riotous comedy and a rigorous case study of why we go to the movies. It's an inventive Valentine made timeless by audacious <laughs> shamelessness and shameless audacity. See, I sure. can look things up, too. Well, okay, all right, all right. But to, to be fair, he, the USA Today review by Susan, and I'm going to butcher her name, but it's Willowskvina, uh contemporary from the time. She says, this movie within a movie, action comedy spoof, is too long, it's too loud, and it toys with Schwartz and Dude's well-toned cinematic image. But she does go on to say... Uh, positive things about how some of the jokes do land and you know it's just sort of like a misfire but a, a brave misfire I I would agree with that you're not degree. alone yeah it is brave yeah. you you gotta give him credit for taking a swing even if you don't believe that it landed you know it's brave to go up against Jurassic Park well that was a whole different they did, well they didn't <laughs> well they didn't know what that they were up against that was more of the but, yeah. like 
stupid suicidal brave as opposed to the <laughs> let's take a risk in this genre brave. And that's sometimes what you need from a hero. Hey, by the way, why is it called Last Action Hero? Are you seriously asking me that question? Is that, is that a real question? Yeah. Because Why is he the last? Because guy that didn't pay attention. At the beginning of the movie, when Joan Plowright is lecturing them about Hamlet, in an effort to get uh... the kids interested, she says, you could argue that Hamlet is the first action hero. Now, at the end of the movie... Jack Slater is going to his captain and saying, I want to do things differently. I want everything to change. I don't understand why we're doing things this way because he's the last action hero. Hang on. Let me just pick up this microphone and drop it. This It's going to be a noise. <laughs> there. It wasn't, and she's it wasn't gone. as satisfying she as I wanted, but it's okay. <laughs> well, Melissa, where can people find you online? Um, I am at melissafolson.com. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, just with the username Melissa F. Olson. And that's F is sure. in Frankenstein. Sure. And your new book is coming out soon, October? Uh, yes. Switchback is coming out just before Halloween. And you can catch up by reading Nightshades in advance if you wish. Yeah, do that for sure. And that's it for us. The credits are rolling. This is Aaron from Melissa saying, keep it real. Keep it real.